Hi, I'm Pastor Kaylee. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wood Street Chapel in Fortuna, California. You can find out more information about our church at www.woodstreetchapel.org. Okay, I don't have the fancy Daniel thing back there, but we're still talking about Daniel. We are in Daniel chapter 2. And there is a lot in this chapter. It's a little bit long. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to do Matthew's whole, like, discover and, like, breakdown thing, like, simultaneously. We're going to read a chunk together, and then we're going to kind of break it down. So I am actually just going to kind of give you a recap on where we last left off. So it, when we last left off in Daniel chapter 1, we have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but we're going to go with their given names based on the conversation that Matthew had with us a couple weeks ago. So Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are captives in Babylon, and they are being swiftly and aggressively assimilated into the Babylonian culture through a training and education program. Um, basically, they're being brought up to be like wise men in the kingdom. So Daniel and his three friends have just stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar's food choices for the young men who are going through this Babylonian education. They've said, nope, we're not going to eat the food that you have given us. We are going to eat the water and the vegetables. And so that's, that's where we've left off with these three, four, with these four. Um, Daniel 2 picks up in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah would still have been very young men. We don't know exactly how old they are, but the Bible does reference them as young men. So we're going to go with that. We are going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it. So if you have your Bibles, follow along. If you don't have your Bibles, you can just listen, and we're going to read it together. So we're first going to read Daniel 2, verses 1 through 13. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologer said to the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Yikes. <clears throat> but if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive for me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more, they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. 
This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all of the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to unpack that a little bit. So King Nebuchadnezzar, smart guy. He's a smart dude. Um, He knows that his advisors will tell him what he wants to hear or will tell him something that will work to their own political advantage. So to get their actual wisdom and the truth about his dream, he challenges them to tell him not only the interpretation, but the actual dream itself. So he's like, I'm not even going to tell you what it was that I dreamed. You tell me, and then you tell me what it means. And in chapter 2, verse 11, the astrologers say, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So this is a big misstep <laughs> on the, on the, on, that the astrologers make. This gives away the fact that the royal astrologers don't have wisdom from their gods. Um, if the gods don't live among the humans, who's giving them their knowledge? Not the gods. So they've essentially just admitted that any advice they were going to give the king or had given the king in the past wasn't divine, but was like completely human in origin, and therefore was in the best interest of themselves and not necessarily in the best interest of the king or the kingdom. So now King Nebuchadnezzar is mad. He's mad. And he has ordered the execution of all of his wise men, including the wise men that are in training, which is why they went to look for Daniel and his three friends. So kind of some big stuff is happening. Okay, so we're going to skip down. What well, skip down? We're going to pick up again on Daniel 2, 14 through 23. We're going to read the next chunk <clears throat> after I have coffee. think this next guy's name is Arioch. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but we're going to go with that. So apologies. I may be saying it wrong. Don't come for me. Okay. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king order such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God in heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel and his friends are studying to become the wise men of Babylon. Um, It's possible that they were still like even in training when this happened, but even if they were, they were still being lumped in with with the wise men. 
Um, and all of them has now been sentenced to death. King Nebuchadnezzar is cleaning house. Since astrologers just admitted they have no divine backing, we're just going to get rid of all of them because none of them are giving me the information that I want. So a uh, knee-jerk reaction to being rounded up for execution. What would most of us do? Run, hide, <laughs> uh, plead for your life. Uh, Daniel instead acted with wisdom and tact, and he asked for time. Not sure about you, but that probably would not be my first choice, but good for Daniel because that was the right move. Um, he gathered Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and asked them to pray with him. They pleaded to God, not to King Nebuchadnezzar, for mercy and revelation of the king's dream and the interpretation that would come with it. I need this thing to be like six inches wider. Okay. We're going to go on. This section's a little bit longer, and there's a lot that happens in this section. Don't worry, we're going to break it down. But this is Daniel 2, 24 through 45. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain it to the can't explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue is made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold." After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. 
Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partially of baked clay and partially of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partially iron and partially clay, so this kingdom will be partially strong and partially brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So, there's a lot that just happened there in that section. There's, there's a lot going on. <clears throat> so, First of all, let's deal with the statue in the dream. So there's a statue that has four layers, and the four layers will represent the four kingdoms that are considered like the world powers at that time, the, the kingdom that's going to dominate what's considered like the known, the known world at that time. Layer one is the golden head. Um, this is Babylon, and the period of domination between Babylon for Babylon historically is 605 to 539 BC. So think of, you know, I always have to do this in my head when I do this. So here's like BC in the middle and like 80 comes this way and like BC is this way and zero is your like your, your point where it changes. And so BC, like your numbers get smaller as it goes to the zero. So 605 to 539 BC, like we're moving closer to year zero. So we're going this way, <clears throat> well, I guess whichever way you want to do it. From my angle, it's this way. So Babylon, period of dominion, 605 to 539 BC. So this is the time that King Nebuchadnezzar would live. So golden head, King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon rules the world. Layer two is the silver chest and arms. So this is the period of dominance from 539 to 330 BC. So we're getting closer to that year zero. And this is the Medo-Persia period of dominant domination. Um, and we will actually see the transition take place in Daniel in chapter five. This when the Mede king, King Darius, overthrows uh, not King Nebuchadnezzar, but his his lineage, he will overtake Babylon in Daniel chapter five. So that king, the Mede Persian king, we will see that guy show up later, King Darius. All right, layer three, the bronze belly and thighs. So this represents Greece and the period of domination that Greece had from 330 to 146 BC. So we're creeping forward on the timeline. And uh, this is the time of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great happens in that time period in Greece. Layer four is the legs of iron. And then there's feet that are made partially of clay, partially of iron. So this is when Rome dominates the world, the Roman Empire. So this is a really long one. Um, this is 146 BC to 476 AD. So like 500 years-ish. Okay, so this is when the life of Christ happens. It happens during this time and then beyond because the Romans had an empire that lasted for a really long time. <clears throat> 
So the types of material in each part of the statue represent the political strength of that kingdom. So if we look at the Roman period, um, that's the one where it has the legs of iron, but then the feet that were partially of clay, partially of iron. So the Roman Empire was very strong in some aspects, but very weak in others. So like the iron would represent like the strong part, the clay would represent the weak part and how there were some real big issues with that empire. The last part of the vision is the rock cut out of the mountain. And this represents God's eternal kingdom ruled forever by Christ. The rock smashes the statue and this represents or shows um, God is the source of power behind all the earthly kingdoms. God grants power to all the different kingdoms so they rise and fall according to his will and it's all under his control. Shows God's sovereignty. In this passage as well, Daniel reveals God to King Nebuchadnezzar in a very interesting way. So worldview. Worldview is how we relate to the world around us. So I'm a Christian, so my worldview is framed through that lens of I believe in Christ, uh, I believe in God, I believe that I'm a sinner, I need a savior, I believe in God's sovereignty, etc., and so forth. My actions and my behavior and my beliefs are all framed through that worldview. That's how I relate to the world. Everybody has a worldview. <laughs> Everybody has one. So in verse 28, if you guys want to go back to verse 28, um, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So this is a real soft introduction to who God is to King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview would have been that there are many gods. Very common, um, you know, we see religions in the past, religions today, that there's, you know, multi-deities in those religions. They believe there's many gods, worshipped many gods. And Daniel understood King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview of there being many gods. And so he softly presents God to King Nebuchadnezzar as a god in heaven. So he's introducing him as a god. I understand that you believe in a lot of gods, so I'm going to introduce him as a god to you to begin with. And then he, he gets a little more aggressive in his, his approach as he goes along. So in verse 37 through 38, if you want to skip down there a little bit, he says, your majesty, you are the king of kings, talking to King Nebuchadnezzar. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. So we see a couple different things happening in this, this little passage. So now Daniel is giving a slightly more aggressive introduction to who God is. He refers to God as the God of heaven, meaning one God, but that God's location is like specific to heaven. And including, according to the worldview of like Nebuchadnezzar, um, if there were multiple gods, like those gods were rulers of like certain things. Like there was the God of the harvest, the God of the moon, the God of the sun, the God of wisdom, the God of the heavens. 
so on and so forth. So he frames God to King Nebuchadnezzar as the God of heaven. So he's kind of further like introducing who God is to King Nebuchadnezzar within King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview. But now he's assigned God like more clout. He's the God of heaven. Daniel also explains God in in relation to King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So King Nebuchadnezzar, as part of his worldview, would think highly of himself. So think of all the kings that you can think of in history and all these different cultures and countries. They a lot of time thought of themselves as gods. Like they kind of put themselves like real high up there with divine rulers. Or if not, like they were maybe not a god, but they definitely were not on the same plane as people. So King Nebuchadnezzar would have this real high view of himself, maybe even viewed himself as a god himself. Um, But at the very least, he would not have been on the same plane as, you know, us piddly humans down here. It's King Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel totally appeals to King Nebuchadnezzar's ego in this passage. So he's saying, you know, like, you are the ruler of all the people and all the birds in the air. You know, they're under your control and so on and so forth. But he says that God gave him those things. God gave King Nebuchadnezzar dominion, power, might, and glory. Therefore, God has power over King Nebuchadnezzar since he gave him all of those things. So he introduces God as the source of King Nebuchadnezzar's success while still appealing to King Nebuchadnezzar's ego as King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview like would have like made him feel. So in verse 44, the very first part of verse 44, he says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. I have a duck on my coffee mug in case anybody was trying to figure out what that was. I know that can be distracting sometimes. You're like, what is that? It's a duck. Okay. All right. Um, Let's see here. Okay. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Okay. So here is a kind of another, a little bit more aggressive explanation of who God is. He's still referred to the God of heaven. Um, And not only has God given King Nebuchadnezzar power, but he's also going to give other kings and other kingdoms power. And God will usher in a kingdom that will endure forever. So now God is being introduced as having a further reaching power to all of the kingdoms of the earth, not just over King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, but the whole earth. So we're kind of slowly pulling out to see like who God is sort of in like the, the worldview, the spectrum of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, kingdoms, earth, world, forever. A little further on, down in verse 44, it says, The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So now, God is revealed as the great God. Not a God, not the God of heaven, but the great God. God is revealed as true and trustworthy because he is accurately relayed King Nebuchadnezzar's dream to Daniel, and only the real God would be able to do that. All right, we're going to read the last little bit here. This is, we're picking up at verse 46. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as He placed them as administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. So in this passage, King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar (laughs) recognizes God as the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. In one conversation, King Nebuchadnezzar has gone from having no idea who God is to recognizing him as the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries. Daniel built his case for God being the one and only true God over time in a way that King Nebuchadnezzar understood as he revealed the dream and its meanings. So then Daniel is placed in a position of high influence and authority. And Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are also placed in positions of high influence and authority. So remember all those wise men that Daniel just like basically saved their their butts? So he's now in charge of all those wise men too. So I kind of wonder what did he do with that training that they were receiving? Makes you think. So he's now in charge of all those guys. So Daniel remains in this high position for his entire life. And Daniel lived a long time. Like, back then, like, if you live past 40, like, good for you. Um, But people just didn't typically live super long. Like, life was hard. It wasn't great medicines. Like, people just didn't live long. And Daniel lived, I don't know exactly how long, but I believe somewhere in Daniel it refers to him as being over 80 years old. And I think he even lived beyond that. So, I mean, like, He was influential in Babylon and the different kings that came and went for an extremely long time. So if you look at the road of Daniel's life up to this point, it is clear that God has strategically placed him there to be a holy influence in the kingdoms that were to come. So that's great. Good for Daniel. What does that mean for us? So. Under pressure, Daniel acted with wisdom and tact. He asked for time when presented with a crisis situation. I don't know about you, but somebody coming to round you up for media execution is about as big as a crisis situation as you can get. Um, He gathered his support network around him. He did not appeal to the earthly source of power. He did not go and beg King Nebuchadnezzar for mercy. He appealed to God for mercy since God truly holds power over all circumstances. So question for you, what is your knee-jerk reaction to a pressure or like a crisis circumstance, however you want to frame crisis? I mean, we have varying degrees of crisis. How do you, how do you react to that? Just think rhetorical question. What's your knee-jerk reaction to pressure? Do you panic? Do you jump to conclusions? Do you run, either like actually or metaphorically speaking? So we can ask for time. We can clear our heads. We can spend time in prayer. 
We can use that time to ask others to pray for us, to seek divine wisdom. Now, I'm not, to be clear, I do not act perfectly under pressure, probably most of the time, but (laughs) the times that those pressure situations have been so much better after the fact have been the times that I have taken time. So my immediate response to like bad news or potentially difficult situation to navigate is I jump into like fix it mode. Like, oh, I just got a text message. I got to respond to this message right now. I just got an email that's like, I got to fix this right now. I need to go talk to this person about this. I need to have this conversation right now. However, I've learned by listening to the Holy Spirit that waiting is almost always the best course of action. Most of the time, if I give the situation a few hours or overnight, the situation changes dramatically. Now, I realize that's not possible in every situation, but so you got to kind of, you know, go with me there. But um, usually, if I give it a few hours or overnight, either the issue is completely resolved with me doing nothing. Um, or I'm able to get a clear head and answer much more appropriately than I would have in that knee-jerk reaction of, I've got to respond to this right now. Or I can also pray about it and go to my advisors for help with a situation. I've gone to my mentor teacher at school many, many times to um, ask her how to deal with the situation when my immediate knee-jerk response was, I've got to take care of this right now. And I've learned that if I just, whoop, hold up a minute there, go talk to somebody who has more wisdom in this area than you, give it a little bit of time, let's pray about it, it turns out so much better than if I had just tried to deal with it myself. Now, Daniel read the room when talking, when taking the dream and the interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar. So he he assessed the situation before he went in with guns blazing. So he could not appear in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and tell him, all your gods are false. I have the one true God. This is how it's going to be. If he had done that, like if he had gone in and told King Nebuchadnezzar that all of his gods were false, um, basically what would have happened is Daniel probably would have been executed right there on the spot. And all of the wise men that he was trying to save probably also would have been executed as well. Would not have solved anything. Instead, he appealed to King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview and how he related to the world around him. He, and I I put this in quotes because obviously we know that God is the one true God, but go with me here on this, okay? He fit God into the king's worldview, and then he slowly deconstructed King Nebuchadnezzar's worldview and replaced it with the truth of God through a carefully constructed case. Remember, he referred to God as, firstly, a God in heaven, secondly, the God of heaven, and finally, the great God. And although King Nebuchadnezzar, like, acknowledges God in this chapter, in chapter 2, doesn't really seem to stick for some other parts of Daniel. Like, if you kind of read through King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, you kind of go, like, what happened? Like in chapter two, you were totally on board with God being the great God, and then things kind of go sideways. But the seed's been planted. The seed has been planted that God is the great God. And sometimes it takes time to see the fruits of our witnessing labors. 
in King Nebuchadnezzar's case, um, it would be many years before we finally see the result of all of those like witnessing encounters that he has with Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. It takes a long time. But eventually, and we will get there through the study of Daniel, he does acknowledge God as being the great God. And it seems to stick that time. So just like Daniel read the room when he was uh, presenting who God was to King Nebuchadnezzar, we need to read the room when introducing people to Christ. Is Is an aggressive approach appropriate? Yes, sometimes. Is a case for Christ built up over time appropriate? Yes, sometimes. Seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit on how to proceed. Many believers came to Christ because of a praying relative, a gentle Sunday school teacher who taught the word week after week, testimonies of others who showed God's sovereignty in their lives. Hello, seven-minute Sunday speakers. That's you guys. Sometimes an aggressive approach might be more harmful than beneficial. Think about if Daniel had taken an aggressive approach. That would have been super harmful. A lot of people would have died. Sometimes it's time for the aggressive approach. Um, and sometimes it's time for a softer approach. Seek the prompting of the Holy Spirit for the approach you should take in the moment and let him speak through you. And this is how a lot of missionary work actually happens. Uh, Missionary organizations have realized that over time, the best way to reach an unreached group is by training and equipping the locals. The gospel is oftentimes received so much better by people within that own culture than by a complete outsider. So training programs are put into place by missionary outreach organizations to bring Christian locals in to train them, to equip them to how to reach and effectively share the gospel with those unreached people within their own cultures and communities. So we're all familiar with Operation Christmas Child. Operation Christmas Child follows a model of that when they do their, um, like their little discipleship program with the kids. That's following a model of that, and they actually follow a model of that when they're contacting uh, different areas to even bring the gifts in. They, they utilize the local community. Missionary organizations have learned how to read the room and change their tactics over time in order to reach the unsaved in a more effective way. Daniel was placed by God to be a holy influencer for him. So we have also been placed to be holy influencers as well. So if I look back on my life and what I thought my life would look like when I was like 15, 17, I can't count, 15, 16, 17, um, it would look real different than what God had planned for me. So to give you an example, um, some of my plans for my life included never being a pastor, never marrying a pastor. I actually vividly remember a conversation when I was in junior high because I grew up as a pastor's kid. And somebody said, oh, don't you want to marry a pastor when you grow up? And I just remember going like, heck no. 
like I grew up as a pastor's kid. Like I know what that's like. So if I had had my way, I never would be a pastor. I never would have married a pastor. I would have been an investigative journalist, preferably on some show like Dateline or, you know, NBC, something like that. That's what I wanted to be. Uh, my uh, major in college for several years was actually a journalism major until I realized I could not be pushy enough to do that. Um, and my plans were to live in a big city or possibly overseas. None of those things are bad. I mean, all those things actually are like, okay, none of those are bad. But uh, that wasn't clearly where God had placed me. So currently, I am a pastor. I am married to a pastor. I am a teacher. And I am a former homeschooler. Yeah, never thought that would happen. So each of these God-orchestrated placements in my life to be a pastor, teacher, and a once-upon-a-time homeschooler has enabled me to be a holy influencer to those around me. If my life had gone according to my plan, um, obviously God would have used me as well because that's where he would have placed me. Like, I can't escape God's plan. Like, if I had ended up being an investigative journalist, it would have been because God wanted me there. But that's not where he wanted me. But he guided me, like, in a completely different direction and a sphere of influence than what I had in mind. And he placed me specifically where I am for a reason, his reasons. Now, I'm sure Daniel's life turned out much differently than what he had initially planned. I'm sure being a captive, dragged away from your home, was not what Daniel was thinking when somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up when he was like seven, eight, nine years old? I'm sure that was not the plan. But God placed Daniel exactly where he wanted him, and Daniel's sphere of holy influence was vast and far-reaching, because he was where God had placed him. So, even if your life has gone according to how you planned it out, uh, God has still orchestrated it that way. So you are a holy influencer in your, old, in your own world. Not like, I might be an influencer. No, like you are. You are currently. So let me ask you, how are you influencing your own world? Your community, your friend group, family, etc. How are you influencing those around you in a holy way? Because that's where you're supposed to be. That's where God has placed you, and God has placed you there for a reason. Okay, let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you for um, giving me these words to speak, Lord God. Thank you for allowing me to um, speak today. And again, I just pray for um, those that are going through um, physical hardships right now, Lord God. I pray that you would just bring peace and restoration and healing. And I just pray for traveling mercies for those that are um, coming back from men's retreat and for others who are, who are traveling in different areas. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like more information about Wood Street Chapel, check out our website, woodstreetchapel.org, or email us, info at woodstreetchapel.org. Connect with us on Facebook to stay in the loop. 